together to guess what book? Joshua. Contrary to what I thought as a kid, the book was not named after me, nor was I named after the book. Joshua chapter 6. We're going we're gonna to cover a ridiculous amount of ground tonight. So I hope that you are ready. And we skipped over a little bit, but we're going to go back and kind of cover it through summary, uh, kind of toward the end. Um, this is our next to last Sunday to talk about Joshua. So if you have loved going through this book, then enjoy the next two weeks. If you have hated it, then you only have two more weeks to uh, put up with it. And we'll move on to something else. Um, chapter 6 is the, uh, the telling of the fall of Jericho. And um, maybe you guys grew up uh, singing the song about Joshua fitting that battle, which I never really understood. Um, but uh, that's the chapter where that story happens. And um, just to kind of bring you up to speed, we're going to start in verse 15, um, which is on the seventh day. And so if you're familiar with the story, you kind of know what's going on. Um, Jericho was the town they had sent the spies into, and Rahab, had, uh, she, she had hidden them, and uh, they made it out fine and everything. And so uh, Jericho was a fortified city, so it had a wall all the way around it. And so Israel, has, they have crossed over the Jordan, and um, Jericho is aware of this, and they are ready because they know that the Israelites are coming. And so it's kind of this, this battle that's about to happen and so what the Israelites do is they, you know, everything's centered around the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so they have the, the Ark and they have the priests. And the priests have these ram's horn trumpet things. And um, so they're kind of in, in front of, of the Ark. And there's all these, these warriors that are there. And, they, and so they get the, the whole army and they, they march to Jericho. And what God tells them to do is to march around it and then go back to where they were camped. And so they march around it, and all the people are silent, and the priests are uh, carrying the ark, and they are doing a little bit of trumpeting. But for the most part, I mean, all the people are quiet. So they, they march all the way around the city. And um, I'm sure that had to confuse the people in Jericho, especially the military personnel, as they probably followed them around the edge of the city. And they just marched around, and they went back. And they did it for six days, because that's what God told them to do. And it probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I'm sure the military... Uh, strategists there didn't really understand what was going on, but Joshua was like, this is what God said to do, and we're going to do it. And um, so that's what they did for six days, and then we pick up in verse 15 on the seventh day. Um, it says, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So before it had been once a day, and now they did it seven times this day. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Okay, now keep, keep that in mind. The city and everything that's in it are devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
And what that idea is, is that this destruction of the city was like an offering. Okay? And that's really, there's brings up a lot of questions, doesn't really make a lot of sense. But, but the, from what God was saying is, you're going to destroy this city as an offering to me. And so everything in it was devoted for that one purpose. And it was set apart. And kind of what this was, you know, in the Old Testament, they were real, um, there's just lots of talk about first fruits. So the, the first crops that come in, first of all, were, were dedicated to the Lord as an offering. But the first fruits were also what determined what the rest of the crop was going to be like. And so this um, first battle that they were going to fight in the land of Canaan, everything was going to be destroyed. And so the, the first time they were going to dedicate everything to the Lord, except for the things that were metal. And those things were going to go into the treasury that would be used for the priests. All right. And so um, it says, verse 17, um, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, now listen to this, this is important, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. All right, super cool story. All they did was yell, and the sucker fell down, and they went and they took everything. Um, they got all the metal out, and uh, because... Everything that was in there was devoted to the Lord. Like he was just very specific, and that was like his instruction to them. Okay? So that's what, what went down, and you read the rest of the chapter, and it talks about how Rahab was spared, and she came and she lived in Israel and all that kind of stuff. Now look at verse 7, I mean, at chapter 7. While all this is going on, um, this is kind of going on behind the scenes. The first verse kind of sums it up. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. All right, so that kind of summarizes it. So, so God said, don't take any of the stuff for yourself, and nobody did except for this one dude. There's always one guy, you know, there's always that guy. And so... Um, and so he, he took some stuff, and so that's what this chapter is about, is um, God was angry with Israel because this one guy messed up and went against what God had told him. And so that's kind of what unfolds in this chapter. And so we're going to talk, um, talk about sin. And uh, Brother Jim, who many of you know, uh, was at Parkview, and he was you know, one of my mentor types. And his favorite joke, tell me, which is not really a joke because jokes are supposed to be funny, but he would always say, if you're going to preach about sin, preach against it. That was always what he would tell me in this drawl where you really couldn't understand what he was saying, but I'm pretty sure that's what he was getting at. Um, never are really sure. And so we're going to talk about sin, and we're going to be against it, and we're going to um, just kind of explore some of the things that are going on in this story. So let's look at verse 2. Here's, here's some of the background. So this is what happens next, okay? So they've taken Jericho, everything's fine, and according to the, Joshua and the leadership and everybody out there, Everything went right, right according to plan, okay? And so this is the next 
place that needs to be conquered. It's called Ai, Ai. And so this is what happens. Verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. The men, uh, uh, see. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do, do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. All right, so certain victory, they're like, there's not very many of them. We saw them. Let's just send a little group, and we'll go, and we'll destroy, you know, it'll be fine. There's no need to make everybody go. It's just not worth it. There's not very many of them. Verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Okay. Now, in our day, if we sent 3,000 troops in and, and 36 were killed, that would not necessarily be seen as this great big defeat. But the way that they fought back then, um, most of the time, uh, whoever would win would have like almost nobody killed. Like It was just very, very rare. Um, pretty much you had one group dominate the other group. It was just ridiculous. And so um, for 36 to be killed, like that was a huge red flag uh, during the military like, um, ways of this day. And so the Sin 3000, 36 of them are killed. They come running back. They turn their backs um, and run, basically. And uh, so look at verse 6. Um, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, when I first read that, I was like, Joshua is a drama queen, isn't he? Like, he had a little defeat, and he's all like, the world's coming to an end, and he's just, you know, just flipping out. And, uh, but the more I read it, you know, first of all, you know, he's, his, the first thing in the first couple verses, they're going through the normal mourning stuff where they would put dust on their heads and they would tear their clothes and stuff. And that was mourning for the soldiers that were lost. And I started thinking about it, you know, and it's easy, it'd be easy for us to be critical and be like, God, he's so whiny. You know, where's be strong and courageous Joshua, you know, who's like the leader guy. But, I mean, it shook him up. And he did the right thing, right? I mean, he turned to the Lord, which is what many of us so often don't do when we get shaken up, you know. Uh, and so I can't, you have to admire the fact that here he is, and his whole world just kind of got rattled. And who does he turn to? He turns to God. And, and what he saw, when you, if you read between the lines, the fact that they were defeated meant that the Lord did not intervene in their battle. And so it's probably not that he was freaked out that they lost. He was freaked out at what losing meant. It meant that God had not stepped in. Something was not right. And so he may be starting to panic a little bit and be like, look, you know, I've, I've been with this nation long enough to know that we tend to mess up and keep messing up. And so, like, we need to nip this in the bud right now because if we're going to lose to a small group of people, word's going to get out and we're toast if we don't correct whatever has gone wrong. And, um, and so, you know, I, I can kind of see it both ways. One, I'm like, Joshua's a wuss, you know. And then I'm like, well, at least he, 
you know, at least he's doing the right thing and handling this crisis in the right way. And so then God kind of brings him uh, on the same page in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. That's pretty strong, right? One guy's mistake affects the entire nation to the point where God does not intervene in this battle and 36 of their men are killed because Achan um, just messed stuff up. The big idea that's being communicated here is that there's, there's sin in the camp. And when there's sin in the camp, there are, there are certain um, things that happen whenever that's the case. And uh, I have a couple of uh, like bullet point things for people who are, are like nice, neat notes. Okay? Uh, the first one, there are three things that we can see in these verses right here about like when there's sin in the camp. Um, one thing, our ability to stand is hindered. Our ability to, to stand is hindered. Um, it says, verse 12, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. Um, these items that were devoted to the Lord, um, they are now buried in the camp of Israel. And so Israel got lumped into that thing of being devoted for destruction. And so when there is sin in our lives, when... Um, you and I are consistently just messing up. It hinders our ability, our ability to stand against temptation and against uh, the influences that are out there and against uh, the, the voices that are telling us to do things and say things and um, go places and treat people certain ways and all this kind of stuff. Um, when there is sin in our lives and there's sin in our church, um, it hinders our ability to stand against those things effectively, right? That's one thing happened with Israel. The other thing, um, the next thing is that when they're sin in the camp, our relationship with God is affected. For, for them, there's sin in the camp, so God was not intervening in this battle situation. And so when there's sin in our lives, um, our relationship with God is affected. Now, Make sure that we are, are basing all this in our understanding of, of the new covenant. Our standing before God is, n is not affected, all right? So when, when, we are, when we're messing up and there's a sin that is just really controlling us and is like pushing us around, um, it does not mean that um, you are no longer God's child, that God has stepped out of your life, that he has turned his back on you uh, or, or anything like that. Our standing before God is not affected, but our relationship to God is affected. You think about the, the story of the parable of the prodigal son that we've been talking about in community group. Um, both of those sons were, were kind of jerks, you know. Um, but throughout the entire story, no matter how stupid they were being and jealous and rebellious and whatever, both of them were, the whole time they were, they were his, still his sons. That never changed anything. With, with my parents, as upset as they have, have, the most upset they've ever been with me, as much trouble as I've ever been in in my life, um, and as divided as our relationship was, 
at times, at no point was I not their son and were they not my parents. My standing with them was not affected, but the way we related to each other was affected. And so when there's sin in our lives um, and, and we are just intentionally like welcoming those things and making bad decisions and we're falling short of the glory of God, which, which we all do in our everyday lives, um, it's going to affect that relationship. That's why um, it's, it's weird to pray when sin has been such a prevalent part of your life. You ever find that's just kind of weird, you know? Like you just feel like this giant hypocrite, you know? Because you're, you're kind of like, like in your prayers, you're trying to like pray around that big issue, you know? It's the big elephant in the room. You're trying not to really, you know, pretend like that didn't happen, you know? Or you become like this complete like grace junkie, you know? To the point where um, like all your theology is all thrown off because you kind of adopt this attitude of, I can really do anything I want and God's still going to love me. He has to because he's gracious and compassionate. And so, um, and so then like we get all these weird theological like streams flowing in our prayer, you know, and it just gets all messed up. And, and that's, that's why it gets so weird, because sin affects our relationship, the way we relate to the Lord. We like to pretend that it doesn't, but every one of us knows that it does. And that's why it's weird to pray when, when life hasn't been going the way that you know it needs to in a way that's honoring God. And so most of the time, we just end up not praying because it's just too awkward and we don't feel like confessing and dealing with it and whatever. And so when there's sin in the camp, it hinders our ability to stand. It affects our relationship with God. And the, the third thing is that our community is impacted by that. Our, our church is affected when um, there's sin in my life, when there's sin in your life, when we have, have stopped trying to fight it and we've just kind of just embraced it and been like, this is just a part of it, I guess, and we just like are just stuck in this rut of just screwing stuff up. Our our church community feels that. Your your friends and those friendships they are impacted by that sin. If you're married, your spouse is affected as a part of your community by the sin that's messing you up. If you have a family. If you're, if you're a parent, your kids are impacted by the sin of your life. That's weird to think about, but you look at this. This is one dude, and you see what happens to his family in a minute. They're affected. <laughs> Here's the entire nation of Israel that's paying the consequences because this one dude decided that he wanted that silver and that gold for himself. And so when there's sin in the camp, it's, it doesn't mean that we, just, we have a, a bad day. There are all kinds of uh, ripples that go out from that, affecting our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and just our ability to, to make it through those times of temptation and struggle. And you look at all three of those things, and basically what happens when, when sin is that prevalent in our lives, uh, the, it affects the glory of God. It affects the, the very thing that we claim to be living for and the very thing that we sing about and we pray God makes the centerpiece of our lives, the, the glory of Christ and lived out in our lives and being spread through our church community and the church around the world to the point where everybody knows him and to the point uh, until Jesus decides to come back. That, the, the kingdom is affected by my sin life. 
And we could stop there, and that's not a very hopeful message. Story gets worse, okay? But it has a happy ending. Let's look at the next, the next part. Look at verse 16. Actually, look at, uh, look at 14. In the, morning, in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel." I read that, and what that says to me is that the Lord does not joke around about sin. We tend to see sin as uh, kind of annoying, something we're not real proud of, and we see it as this, this thing we just kind of have to live with, you know. And um, I don't think that we take a very serious approach to sin, and I don't think we really look at it as being a, a destructive force in our lives. But when I look at this, and you know, God's like, "All right, we're going to narrow this down in front of the entire country, so that uh, everybody can watch this process get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until everybody sees the one guy that caused all this, and then we're going to burn him. And we're not just going to burn him; we're going to burn everything connected to him in order to purify the nation." And I look at my life, and I look at the things in my life that I'm continually rebellious about, or um, just, you know, where I'm just defiant, or like I just don't care, the things I pray about really hard on Sunday, but not so much on Wednesday, and, you know, stuff like that. And I look at it, and I'm like, the Lord does not look at that flippantly. He looks at that and says, um, I mean, big picture-wise, he looks at that and says, my son's going to come die so we can render that powerless. That's taking it pretty seriously. So this, in verse 16, it says, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites, Zer- Zer- uh, I even practiced that too, was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. And do not hide it from me. That's strong. I like that. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. All right. There's, the, there's a pattern here that we see in his experience that I think we can all relate to. If I could paraphrase it a little bit, let me give you, let me give you four things real quick. That where he sums up in his story. He says, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. He, he saw it, 
there's, there's this connection that we often have. There's like a trigger when it comes to sin for so many of us. Um, you, you know, you, and you read, read different things from these different writers that will talk about like how, how men, men have to guard their eyes, you know, that, that there's a, an eye gate, that they call it, that you have to guard. And with women, it's, it's their ears, you know, it's what they hear, um, stuff like that. Um, all of us, regardless of male or female or whatever, all of us um, come in contact with things that trigger something in us. And maybe guys have to guard their eyes more, but girl, you have to do it too. And maybe girls are more affected by what they hear, but guys are affected by what we hear too. Um, but there are just these different ways that we like, come in contact with, with things that, that spark something. And not, not you, you just hate it, don't you? Because uh, so many times you, you know when it happens. You know the second that it happens. You know, in the classic example, you know, uh, a, a guy gets, a, gets an email that he shouldn't get and opens it up, and all of a sudden, like, there's, like, there's this trigger, you know, in, in his mind. Um, and, you know, I think guys get a bad rap because I think girls have the same exact thing happens when they, when they flip through these magazines, you know. Same thing, right? What you're seeing. All of a sudden, something in you, like, you connect to it somehow. Sometimes it's something that, that, that you hear, um, a, a comment that's made to you, or sometimes it's a compliment. It's a great thing that somehow, sometimes just launches, like, something in you that is just that's bad for you, you know. Um, someone says something to you, and it hurts your feelings. And for dudes, we don't like to act like our feelings get hurt, so we just get mad about it, you know. And a lot of times, anger, it's just a hurt feeling. It's just more gruff, I guess. Um, somehow, we, we come in contact with something, and what happens is, just like he saw that stuff and he coveted it, um, we come in contact with it first, but then the coveting part is, is when it stirs something inside of us. So maybe, maybe you see something on the computer screen that you shouldn't see, and you come in contact with it, and then all of a sudden, it stirs something in you that you don't want to be stirred, you know. Maybe you hear something. Maybe someone uh, is affirming to you. Maybe uh, someone is a little careless with their words. Maybe you've been dating for like six days, and the dude says, I really think I love you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, everybody's in love for the first six days, you know. Um, maybe someone's careless with their words, you know. Maybe you, maybe you hear this really, really good bit of gossip and it launches something in you, you know. Maybe you hear that, that someone, uh, someone messed up and there's a part of you that just loves to see people, certain people mess up. Um, we come in contact with those things and it launches something in us. For him, he saw this gold and this silver and he coveted that, you know. Maybe sometimes we see things and they're just material possessions that we don't need, we Maybe not even want, but there's something in us where you're like, I've, I've got to have that. I'll just leave that example real open for you. Um, I've, I've got to have that, you know, like, and it's like, I, I don't care what it takes. Um, and so that, like, those two things are what, what I would consider to be, like, like, extremely expected for our, like, our experience. Um, I don't think there's anything about those two steps that, that really is, that we should be shocked about. Um, a lot of times we'll, we'll talk here at the ring about, um, like I'll put this diagram up of two circles that, that overlap a little bit, 
And one circle is for the, says spirit, one says flesh, and then how our lives are lived in the area where those two overlap, and how, like, there's this, there's this constantly this battle going on in us. And so what happens is we're living in, in that area of over, overlap where the spirit of God is living and active and he's at work in us, there's also like the flesh that is there. And so here we are and we face these situations and we come in contact with something. We see it, we hear it, whatever, and it, it affects us somehow. And until we die and go to heaven, like that's going to, it's going to happen. All right? So don't beat yourself up about the fact that sometimes you see things or hear things and it affects you. All right? That's a, a part of God's design for us. And but the, the beautiful part is that there we are, and we have that happen, and now when you're in Christ, there is an overlap. Before, it was just the circle of flesh, and so you had no choice. You're basically rendered powerless. If you're able to overcome certain temptations or whatever, it was, you just got lucky, basically. Um, but now, as we're in overlap, then the, the Christ in us makes it possible for us to not move to the next step of, of acting on that. See, he saw the, the stuff, and he coveted it, and then he took it. And for us, we connect to things and it sparks something in us, but it's what we, how we act upon it next that, that really like, d- determines the outcome of things. See, living life in, in the overlap, we are able to, uh, when you see that get affected, you're like, oh my gosh, that, that really messed with me. And so what should we do? We should turn to the Lord and be like, okay, uh, I saw that on the screen just now, and yeah, I need to be praying right now. But sometimes the flesh wins out, and we act on those things. The things that we hear begins to affect us, and we act, and we feed, feed into that, that leaning. And then that fourth step where he hid it, I mean, he took it, but he knew he wasn't supposed to take it, right? He saw it, he coveted it, he took it. And he hid it. He buried it in his tent underneath, like in the ground. And don't we do that too? I mean, I would imagine that in this room with this number of people, there are some secrets that we're all keeping that we would absolutely die if people knew. Things that we think about, things that we do, um, attitudes that we ponder, things that we wrestle with, things that we have been through. Uh, things that have been conquered in a lot of ways, but still kind of creep up every now and then. We work so, so, so hard to make sure nobody finds out that stuff, don't we? We work so hard that we really convince ourselves sometimes that that's not really a problem, you know? That that's not really an issue. And we convince ourselves that God doesn't even know it's there, you know? I wonder if, if Achan was like, I can bury this in the ground and the Lord won't even know it's there, you know? We bury stuff deep down in our, in our memories, in our minds, in our hearts, and we kind of even kid ourselves into thinking that God's forgotten about something. And we watch that progression happen. We connect to it, and it stirs something in us. And when we mess up is when we act on those things, and then we go into hiding. We walk around, and we're ashamed of these big old sections of our lives, and we can't talk to anybody about it. Because then they're going to find out, and what if they think badly of me, and then I'm going to, you know, they, I've worked really hard to make sure that they think I'm cool, or that I'm spiritual, that I'm holy, or whatever, and then if I confess this, then they're going to know that I'm not, and then 
I just don't know, you know, we become George McFly. We're like, I don't know if I could take that kind of rejection. And so what do we do? We, we just repress it, you know. And then, then you, you get to the point, like, and I don't know where I heard this for the first time, and it's always just been one of my favorite things about, about how God works. Um, somebody talked about, like, God putting his finger on, a, on an area of your life and just starting to press on it. Don't you hate that? And anytime you go to pray, you know exactly what, where your mind's going, you know? Anytime you come to a worship service, you know, you know what you're going to deal with. And God's got his finger on the area of your life, and he's just pressing little by little. He's not jabbing you, you know, you're not like going to bleed to death. He's just, just pushing on it. He's, what he's saying is, deal with this. Deal with this. Let's talk about this. Quit hiding from this. Quit pretending like this is not a problem. Quit pretending like this is not killing you. Like this is not destroying you. Like your life is anything but abundant because you won't man up and deal with this. And so Achan comes up and he confesses. You know, he's like, I saw that stuff and I coveted it and I took it and I hid it. And this is what Joshua says, verse 22. Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. They laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent, even his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. God does not joke around about sin. And even his tent. <laughs> tent didn't do anything. He had to wipe out every, every connection that this guy had, completely destroy it, and get it out of the presence of Israel. And what happened after that? Things were fine. And so, so we look at this, and you know, I was looking at it, I got to the end of the chapter, and I was like, all right, well, bummer, you know? Like, what, what does that have to do with us? All right, sin's bad. Like, what, do we, what do we do about it? Been hearing since I was a kid, you know. Do this, don't do this, you'll be fine. And it's just it's not that simple, you know. I'm sure that there are things in this room. If we were to, you know that 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 website about posting your secrets, or whatever. If we were to have that in here, I'm sure there are things that if if you were to tell the, the secret sin that you struggle with, you've been hiding with, and you were to put a timeline with it as far as how long this has been a part of your life. I think you'd probably want to throw up if you really sat down and looked at your life and said, when did I start battling this? I think there are some people here tonight who you're just like, I'm, I'm so tired of fighting it, I quit fighting it. I don't even care anymore. And I bet there are some tonight who, who you can look at your life and you can say, praise the Lord, I, I battled this at one time. 
And I've seen him deliver me from that and, and help me through that. If you can say that, then I, I mean, glory to God in your life. And I hope that you recognize that, that you hear this tonight and you can say, I still have my struggles, but there are some things that, that the Lord has seen me through. But if you're here and you're like, I'm, I'm dying and I've been dying, and my community is affected and the glory of God in my life is affected and my relationship with God is affected, and I'm basically I've just almost forgotten even that I need to fight, much less how. Let me, let me tell you a couple of things. In chapter 5, we're not going to read all this. I'm going to summarize some stuff. Um, when you're looking at a story like this, you know, like in Paul's, le- Paul's letters or Jesus' teachings, he's like teaching specific things. Um, in a story like this, you, you kind of have to look at what happened and you have to kind of pull some of the elements out. And there were, there were five things between uh, chapter 5 and chapter 7 um, that I thought were significant as far as um, dealing with sin and whatever. And let me rattle those off for you real quick. The first one, in chapter 5, the first uh, 10 verses we see that, that um, they had just crossed over the Jordan, and before Jericho was to happen, there was something really important that God did with them. Um, he uh, had them uh, basically go back to the, um, the fundamentals of their covenant with Abraham. For them, um, circumcision and Passover were some of the big identity markers that they had. And so they, they get to the other side, and this generation... Um, and just forgive me if this makes you weird. Um, it makes me weird too. Um, this generation had not been circumcised. And if you go back and you look at the covenant with Abraham, that was, that was the, the physical mark of saying, like, you are part of this covenant people. That's how um, males were identified with this community. And so um, while they were in the desert, that did not happen. And they're all kind of like, you know, people who think they know why they didn't do it or whatever. And some say they're always moving and there wasn't time to heal and all that kind of stuff. And some say they just lost their faith. They're like, why do that? Why be a part of this covenant? Because this dude has us walking around in the desert, you know? Um, Regardless of what it is, before the battles that were ahead were to come, God re-identified this new generation with himself, with being a part of his covenant people. So their sense of identity was renewed. When we're battling sin... We always go back to, the, to who we are in Christ and the fact that, that when we are sinning, and I say this all the time, you know, and I, it's weird because like, it's like I can't say it enough for my own benefit. Maybe you guys will get it. Um, but, so when I stop saying it, it means I've finally started to get it. But when, when we sin, we are acting in a way that is contrary to who we really are. Now you think about this. An entire nation, all right, gets circumcised and they, they camp out, and they wait until everybody's healed, everybody's ready to, to go into battle, and then, then they do the Passover meal. And then they go in, and they march around this place a couple of times, and they shout, and everything falls down, and God tells all these people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, don't touch the gold, don't touch the silver, all that stuff is for me. And only one guy out of all these people screws that up. And I have to wonder if it's the fact that after going through circumcision and Passover, if they were brought back to center and they were like, we know who we are. We obey Yahweh. And he said, don't take it, and we're not going to take it. 
maybe, maybe for you, the battles with sin that you have come from the, the fact that, that you get so far off from understanding who you really are. Maybe coming back to that point constantly is what needs to happen for you. Maybe, maybe the, the thing is when you get to a point where you're like, it makes me sick to even think about that being in my life because it's so just not me. Maybe that's it. The second thing that we see is in, uh, also in chapter 5 is there's, there's provision. You know, they had been, um, there had, their whole diet had been manna and quail. Manna would show up on the ground in the mornings and they would pick it all up and they would be able to eat. And every day God would have manna on the ground for them and then like the quails would fall out the sky. It was crazy. And um, that was their entire diet. And when they get over into the, into the new land, um, the manna stops. And there's no more quail. They begin to eat the, the fruit of that land right away, right from the jump. That God provides them with what they needed. And I was thinking about provision and how here we are, we identify ourselves with Christ, but then the provision that is ours is, is Christ in us, that as those circles overlap, it's, it's His power at work in us. He's provided us with His Spirit that, is, that never departs from us. There's not a thing we can do to escape Him. There's nowhere we can go to hide. There's, just not, there's not a moment where we're rendered powerless. We're constantly powerful because He is powerful. And so there's provision that is there. The third thing that I saw was, that, um, was the, the presence of God. If you look at the end of, of chapter 5, um, Joshua, Joshua looks over and he sees this guy and he's got his sword drawn. And Joshua, was, he was the commander, right? And so if anybody was going to have their sword drawn, it's because he told them to. So he marches over to this dude, and he's like, are you for us or are you against us? And this is what is said. Um, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. That ring a bell? That's his, his experience. Moses saw the, the, the bush that was on fire. This was Joshua's experience where, um, like a lot of people think, this is Jesus that shows up and says, I'm the commander of this army. You take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. See, we identify ourselves with Christ and we are provided with Christ in us and everything we need for life and godliness and it's the presence of, of God. The fact that there's never a point in life where He's not there. His presence being active in our lives. You want to conquer sin? It's not going to be done outside of a recognition of the presence of God being active. Think about the, think about the thing in life that you screw up the most. Think about um, how, like, would you dive into that if you were fully aware of just how near the Lord is at that moment? Probably not. Identity, provision, the presence of God. The fourth thing, um, fourth thing I saw was obedience. When I came to Jericho, I was like, all right, you're going to march around it. Nobody talk. And they did it. They did it for six days in a row. And Joshua was like, okay, today we're going to do it seven times. And when you hear the long blow of the trumpets, I want you to just shout as loud as you can. <laughs> sure, they were like, uh, What? <laughs> Really? Okay. But they were obedient. 
think about how just our simple steps of obedience. Think about how much that affects our struggles with sin. Somebody told me not too long ago that the, thing, the only thing that God requires of us is the next obedient step. Sometimes that's the hardest step you've ever taken in your life is the next step of obedience. And the final thing is that God is a warrior. There's no way that a bunch of people get around a fortified city and yell at it and it falls down without the power of God showing off. The things that you battle with, the things that have just got you crippled emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever, the things that are just paralyzing you, there's no way that you're going to conquer that stuff. But God is a warrior, and God always wins. When we are obedient, He goes in and He fights for us, and we yell at walls and they crumble. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that there are people who can be addicted to substances and God can free them from that. To me, that makes no sense. It makes no sense that there can be people addicted to internet pornography and God can deliver them from that. It makes no sense that there are just things in life that for years will hold somebody back and God can just initiate that change and through obedience, and through identity, and through Christ in Him, and His presence at work, and He's fighting those battles, and you watch someone's life completely change, and you're like, okay. But you know, until we begin to take sin in our lives seriously, um, we're going to continue to suffocate some of us. And that might not be you right now, but if it is, you're probably really uncomfortable or even talking about it. You just want the music to start. And I get that. I do. But God does not joke around about it. God takes great delight in fighting for us. He loves the fact that he's a warrior so much that he called himself that in his word. He loves our obedience so much that he makes it clear what the next steps are are and gives us the power to take them and so much that he sent his son to die so that the sin that Achan was controlled by and that curse we're not under it anymore we have everything we need to choose the spirit and to deny the flesh everything we need everything we need so it's all right there and think God really looks at us sometimes and says, you just, you try me. You try me. And you'll see. Let's pray together.